The Bain Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. On the podcast, bloody hands and oil-stained rags spark a basement conflagration. Dwarves, elves, half-elves, horned halflings, and a star to steer them by. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We have part one of a fascinating interview with David Weber this time, who discusses his new addition to the Norfressa fantasy series. That's also known as the War God series to some and the Basel Bonnickson series. Um, but its official name now, according to David, is the Norfressa series, and the Basel books are the um, the Basel cycle within that. And this novel, The Sword of the South, begins a new cycle, which David is calling the Ken Hoden cycle within the series, although Basel is, is certainly in this book. We have a really fascinating discussion with David about the book, and that's coming up. If you want to have a look at a great four-color map to this fantasy world that David has created, we have it online. David discusses the map in the interview, by the way. You can find the map at you can find the map at www.bain.com forward slash sosmap.jpg. That's bain.com forward slash sosmap.jpg. So check that out. Also, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. But first, here's the news. We have some great free fiction and nonfiction on the Bain.com website this month. We have two new short stories. First, we have a new story by Robert Butner, creator of the Orphan's Legacy military science fiction series. Those books include Overkill, Undercurrents, uh, balance Point is the last one. Bob worked for the uh, Marathon Oil Company for a while, and his life experiences, he says, informed this story. But only the ridiculous parts are true, according to Bob. Bob claims that he knows where big oil has hidden the 100-mile-per-gallon carburetor, but if he told you, he would have to kill your hybrid. It's really an excellent story called The 100 MPG carburetor and other self-evident truths. We also have free fiction from David B. Coe in his Case Files of Justice Fearson Contemporary Fantasy Universe. His Father's Eyes, which is book two in the series, is out in August, and this story is an excellent prequel to read to give you a taste of what's to come. The story is called New Moon Wolf. And for nonfiction this month, we have David Drake discussing how he came to share a byline with the great boys' book adventure writer Jim Kajalgard, who was the author of Big Red and other novels. 
Out in August is an all-new edition of David Drake and Jim Kajalgard's The Hunter Returns, which expands one of Jim Bain and David's favorite boyhood books, Fire Hunter by Jim Kajalgard. The essay is Dave Drake at his droll best, so check that out. And check out the 100 MPG Carburetor and Other Self-Evident Truths by Robert Butner, New Moon Wolf by David B. Coe, and David Drake's aptly titled essay is called Slaughtering Early Humans for Fun and a Slight Profit. Those can all be found at Bain.com. Here is part one of a two-part interview with David Weber discussing the new Norfressa high-fantasy novel that takes place in the basel Bonnickson universe. The book is The Sword of the South. We'll have the conclusion of the interview next week. I want to welcome David Weber back to the podcast. Hi, David. Hi, Dodie. David Weber is the creator of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series and the Honorverse within which that series is set, beginning with On Basilisk Station. Weber's Honor Harrington science fiction novels have sold millions of copies. David is also the author of many other Bain books and a couple of series with other publishers somewhere. David has 17 New York Times bestsellers, maybe more. That's <laughs> that's constantly changing, and, and we're, we're revising it upward. And there are over 7.5 million David Weber books in print. David has a big, fat fantasy series published by Bain. Previous volumes have featured that massive Radani Barbarian, champion of the war god Tomanak, uh, husband to a Sothoi. Is she a shield maiden or a war maiden? A war maid. Leanna. And they don't, they're not usually allowed to have husbands, but uh, I guess when you, you marry Basel, you, exceptions are made. The books include Oath of Swords, The War God's Own, Wind Rider's Oath, and War Maid's Choice. Now, it is 70 years later in the series time frame. I think that's right. And there's a new entry that marks the beginning of an all-new story arc within the Norfresa setting. That book is The Sword of the South, and it's now available at booksellers everywhere. Uh, I, I, let me, let me, before we go any further, tell me, let me give you, let me, let me check some pronunciations with you, and then maybe we need to start over again. Here. That's okay. Well, I don't mind you correcting me on air, uh, because so many people read, you know, uh, fantasy novels and they don't know how to say them until the author says them anyway. So. Well, it's, it's, it's Basel. Yeah. Um, serves the war god Tomanake, um, and Leanna is a Sithoe. Uh, Windrider. Okay. Uh, well, well, actually, she's a Sithoe war maid who also happens to be a Windrider, although that's an unusual set of circumstances. But then she's an unusual lady, so, mm -hmm. you know. All right. Well, you know, I've been writing ad copies, uh, ad copy for this series since it began. So uh, it's nice to finally, um, <laughs> finally know how to pronounce these things. Um, emails on them, but we haven't actually actually spoken to each other about them, so you've never heard me pronounce them. But that's why there's the there's the uh, the vowel marking over the A in Tomanek and the O in Sithoe. Ah, those aren't just affectations. That's how you say it. That, that applies to all of the places where they turn up. Yeah. <laughs> David, you and I had an email exchange about how to classify this entry the Sword of the South is, among other things, about the coming into his own of another character, who is uh, the mysterious Ken Hoden. So, well, in the book, it's a dark and stormy night, as we began. Um, this red-headed dude is wandering through the, the port city of Belhaden, uh, very wet, very confused. What can you tell us about him? And how do you say Belhaden? <laughs> I say Belhaden, but, you know. Let's um, not call the whole thing off, though. At the moment that we meet him, we don't even know what his name is, and he's not aware of the fact that he doesn't either. Um, and um, he's uh, he's going to turn out to be very important to the to the series and to the entire world of Orfresa, which Norfresa is one continent of. Um, 
But aside from the fact that he's a guy who has what appears to be rather selective amnesia um, and that he is very important to a lot of the uh, the big players in, uh, in uh, the upcoming war, I uh, can't tell you a whole lot more without uh, spoilers uh, that extend well beyond this book. Sure. Well, he, we know he's a pretty good fighter. I think that's mm-hmm. fair to say. Well, yeah, that that becomes evident uh, pretty early on. Uh, in fact, for folks who have read the um, the existing uh, Norfressa novels, I think of this as the as the uh, the Bazel cycle and the Kinhoden cycle. That's how I divide them in my own mind uh, between. And the Bazel cycle isn't necessarily done. There's still at least one other book I want to write there, but. You know. Uh, anyway, the um, Ken Houghton, in some ways, is actually, although he's only like only like six foot six, uh, whereas Basel is like seven foot nine and flourishes his great sword around one-handed and everything else. Uh, in many ways, Ken Houghton is actually more dangerous in a fight than Basel is. Ken Houghton himself doesn't really recognize that, uh, but uh, Bazell does. Yeah, it's kind of uh, fun to be in Ken Houghton's point of view when he realizes just how good he is. Yeah, well, and it's it's not something that he's sure he should be glad about being. Right, I yeah. doesn't remember who he was or where he came from. He's got scars all over him, which indicate that he's had uh, a fairly... Violent. Gosh, he's got an awful lot of scars for somebody who's like maybe in his in his thirties. Um, and and when he discovers he discovers that he has uh, additional skills besides just fighting. For example, he discovers that he is a highly skilled uh, musician. Uh, but the one that that worries him is this this combat skill of his because he doesn't know. He doesn't remember acquiring it, and that means that he doesn't remember what he did in the process of acquiring it. He doesn't. He has no clue how many people he may have have killed in his life, and the fact that he can't remember doing it strikes him as a pretty poor excuse or defense if somebody somebody uh, calls him on it, uh, or if he calls himself on it, because he simply doesn't know. Um, and he falls in with Vincent of Room, the most powerful wizard in the world, quite possibly the most powerful wizard in all of history. And it's clear that Vincent does know all the things that Ken Houghton has forgotten. He knows who Ken Houghton is. He knows where he got the skills. He knows all this stuff. And he won't tell Ken Houghton. He, he can't tell Ken Houghton, or at least Ken Houghton has to decide whether or not he can accept the fact that Winsett truly can't, as opposed to won't, tell him. But Winsett does promise him, uh, and he promises by his own art, which is a pretty potent oath for any wizard to, to swear, that if they both live someday, Kitten Houghton will know everything that Winsett knows about him and understand why Winsett is doing what he's doing. And so Kitten Houghton has to decide whether he can put enough faith in Winsett to accept that. Um, and it's not easy for him. No, especially because Winsett will not promise that he's going to survive to find out. One of, one of the things about the entire world of, uh, of Orfresa is that the way that the the cosmological explanation for what's going on here is sort of, I guess you could say it's sort of quantum physics in a way, Um, because the the nature of the war between good and evil uh, in, in the novels ultimately leaves the decision for which wins in the hands of the mortals who have to choose whether they are going to serve the light or the dark. 
and the gods don't know what's going to happen. In not even the gods know precisely what's going to happen in any given strand of of reality. You have all these parallel universes. You can think of them that way, in which you have a a, a gazillion Bazels, and in each of those universes, Bazel that universe's Bazel has to make choices. And his choices contribute ultimately to the choices of others, the decisions of others, how things work out in battle and so forth. But until you reach the tipping point where the war between good and evil is decided by which one now controls uh, what you might think of as a critical mass of the universes, nobody knows what's going to happen in any single reality. The gods can see all of them, but they don't know which one applies to this particular universe. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is part of, of, the, of the decision-making process. Ken Houghton's decision, his choice as to what he's going to do with this information that Winsett can't tell him is part of it. But even if Winsett could see the future in detail, Winsett would, couldn't tell him whether he would live or die. Now, there is a group of people uh, in Norfressa who can see the future that will occur to them and those around them. Uh, they are uh, magi who have the, the talent of precognition. However, precognition is much, for want of a better term, shorter ranged than than would be necessary to tell Winsett, to tell Ken Houghton whether he's going to survive or not. Uh, precognition is is very focused. Um, it will tell the person who has it certain things which they may or may not be able to fully control. It will tell the things that will definitely come to pass for their strand of reality. But it doesn't have the ability to see all possible outcomes or reach beyond a fairly short temporal horizon. And then there are the dragons. We meet one of them uh, in this book. And the dragons are kind of like the gods. They can see all possible outcomes um, of their own actions uh, and how they will interface with. And as they move along their life experience, the possibilities for what future they will experience narrow because you go past different points where you could have branched off and gone somewhere else. But the dragons can only... Dragons know what's going to happen maybe an hour and a half before it happens, what is actually going to happen to them, maybe an hour and a half before they get there depending on how momentous it is. There are some things that they'll know because the forces in play are so so uh, so big, so powerful, that there are only a limited number of ways it could work out, if you see what I'm saying. There's a really cool, um, <laughs> using the metaphysics, it's a really cool attack that happens in the book with the, with the shadow warriors. Well, that, that, ties into the whole, you know, there are other realities, other universes out there. The Shadow Warriors, the Shadow uh, the Shadow Mage, um, they're basically recruited from another universe. And Winsett doesn't know for sure which universe they came from. He just knows it's not this one. They probably, there's no way for him to know this, but they probably came from a universe in which the the struggle has already been decided in favor of the dark. That's where demons and devils tend to come from when they're summoned into into Norfressa. Is they're coming from a universe in which the dark has won, and they have these powerful servants uh, who they can they can bring across, assuming that they can get by the gods of light 
to transfer between universes. The, the most powerful entities in these dark universes cannot cross into a universe where the struggle hasn't been decided yet because they're so powerful that they can't hide themselves while they're trying to sneak across between the, the, the realities. Uh, so even as powerful and nasty as the demons and the devils that, uh, that uh, Bazel has faced um, in the earlier books are, they're actually not the first tier of servants uh, of the dark in the universes where the dark have won. The devils tend to be more powerful than the demons. They're kind of at the, the upper edge of what you can get across without having Tomanek or Ismaria or somebody swat them uh, on passage. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, they uh, you can think of the shadow warriors, the shadow, the shadow men, um, as... Um, as uh, this is going to sound bad, but, but as, as sort of low rent demons um, <laughs> that that um, are being pulled across by a wizard rather than by a deity. Yeah, well, it's a really cool fight scene that that results. Yeah, so to get back to the physical reality of Nor of, of the place, um, Ken Hoden wanders into this really cool tavern, the Iron Axe. Uh, you have this great description. There's like all the races of men are there um, hanging out. Stocky dwarfs brush shouldered with ivory horned halflings and the tall, broad shouldered men of the northern providences. What are the races of men? There are certain fantasy tropes that you're, you're going to pick up and run with. And I think fantasy writers have, uh, have uh, tropes is a word that's used, overused almost as much as paradigms, but I, I digress. Uh, that, that are building blocks of a fantasy. And I think it depends in part on how, what your take on them is. My take on them is that there are five races in this universe which are considered the races of man. Um, they are all uh, interfertile. They all came from the original base stock, apparently, somewhere along the line. Uh, and they are humans, dwarves, Radani, uh, elves, and halflings. Uh, there's also a bunch of folks called the half-elves, but they are not considered a true race of man because they, they don't, uh, uh, they don't breed true. Uh, on, on, on their own. I mean, they, they do for a generation or two, and then they have to infuse new genetic material from, from the, the, what I think of as the donor races to, to make it, to, to sustain their, their, their existence. Um, the, uh, humans are kind of the, uh, the generalists of, of Norfress. Uh, they don't, you know, they're not the great engineers, they're not this, they're not that. However, every wizard ever born has been either human or half-human. There have never been any wizards who were elvish or who were dwarvish or who were halflings, or certainly not Radani. Um, the Radani tend to be uh, uh, very physically powerful. Uh, they tend to be tall. Uh, although the the horse dealer Radani, the the northern Radani, the um, um, like Bazel, are by far the tallest. They're the biggest and the most powerful. Bazel refers to his friend Brandark, who is six feet two, as little man. And when you think about the fact that Bazel is over a foot and a half taller than he is, you can understand why he would be doing that. But most other people really, really wouldn't call Brandark. He's about six feet two and probably about six feet across the shoulders. I mean, yeah, you wouldn't really call him little. But Bazel does and, and gets away with it because it's true. Um, but the Radani um, were used as shock troops by the uh, the Dark Lords down in Kantavar, the southern continent where everybody in North Russia came from originally, in the war that toppled the empire of Adavar and 
caused everybody to refugee out to North Russia. They were basically enslaved by the evil, evil wizards, the dark wizards. And when they didn't want to cooperate, uh, the wizards used uh, sorcery to compel them to, to drive them into a frenzy. Uh, and what the wizards didn't really realize, because they don't think in these terms, is they were genetically engineering the Hradani to have this trait, which the Hradani called the rage, which can take them mm-hmm. whether they want it or they want to or not. Uh, but the Radani also, and this predated the Dark Wizards starting to mess around with them, the Radani are directly linked to the the magic field. Um, essentially, if you look at how magic works in, in Norfressa, what they're doing is they are manipulating the basic nature of matter, the, the energy that all matter ultimately is made out of using uh, metaphysical tools rather than physics. Uh, But what they're doing in many cases has ramifications that could also be described in terms of our physical understanding of the universe so that the the trait that that, uh, drives the Verdani into this frenzy is genetically coded into them. And it's just that the the wizards who wanted to produce that result don't think in terms of genes. They think in terms of this is the result that I want. And that's how they get. Same thing happened to transform the coursers out of standard war horses to give them the link to the magic field and the intelligence and so forth. Um, When the wizards of light set out to improve the war horses of uh, the, the of uh, the Adivaran, uh cavalry, uh, they didn't realize all the ramifications of the genetic changes that they had set into motion until the coursers emerged as fully sentient, uh, a fully sentient species in their own right. Um, so there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. But to get back to the races of man, uh, human. Radani and Dwarf were the three first races of man. Uh, And the thing that distinguishes the dwarves from anyone else is that they are the only people who who produce uh, uh, Sadmasek. And these are stone herds, if you will. They can command stone. Uh, They can shape it. They can can fuse it. They They can cut tunnels through it by exercising this power. And so, in a sense, they're touching the magic field directly in this one limited fashion. Uh, the elves were once humans, um, but uh, thousands of years ago, when Adivar the Great was creating the empire of Adivar down in Kantavar, there were a bunch of guys who had uh, a natural affinity for the magic field. They were not wild wizards like Winston who can touch it directly, but they used it in a, a natural, uh, instinctive way that was very dangerous. Um, and they agreed, their ans- the current elves' ancestors agreed to exchange their gift uh, for touching the magic field for effective immortality. Uh, in a working performed by Adivar um, and his wife, uh, Gwynitha. Um, he's Adivar the Great, she's Gwynitha the Wise, and they're the ones who put the kibosh on, on black wizardry 10,000 years ago. Um, and the elves are the result of that manipulation. Nobody knows exactly how the halflings were created, Um Winsett believes, and he's probably got the, the lowdown on it, if anyone does, that basically the um, you might think of the, the halflings as being radiation-induced mutations. They are the descendants of servants of the, of the wizards in Adivar uh, who were simply exposed to so much magic that it, it, it changed them genetically into a distinct different race. Um, and so 
when somebody talks about the races of man in Norfressa, they're talking about all of these groups. They're also talking about the, the half-elves, but the half-elves are not considered, as I say, a distinct race, which pisses them off. Now, when the nasty <laughs> racists in Norfressa are the half-elves. Um, they, uh, because nobody will, because they have to periodically introduce uh, human or elvish blood into the bloodline to maintain who they are, et cetera, et cetera, they prefer to think of themselves as superior to both. Uh, they don't, they only live like five, six hundred years, not forever like elves do, but they have the, the practicality of humans, et cetera, et cetera. So they're better than either of the parent stocks. Um, and the rest of the world is fine. You can, you know, classify yourself however you want. <laughs> so, no, we don't consider you another race of man. <laughs> well, that sounds like a huge inferiority complex working itself out, but let's not. <laughs> well, well, all right. So what about the present, the Iron Axe? Um, who are the proprietors? Um, and how did, how did they get to this point? Um, bring us up to date basically on, on Bazel and, and, Leana and, and what's going on at the moment as we start the book. People who are going to read the books and want to be surprised shouldn't listen to this part of the podcast uh, because it's one of the one of the little twists here in the book is for people who know it to try and figure out what the heck is going on. Um, when Ken Houghton discovers just how old Bazel and Leana actually are. Yeah. We're point. a good ways ahead of the end of, uh, of War Mate's Choice, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Several decades. Um, the Iron Axe is a tavern which is owned by uh, Basil Bonnickson and, um, and his wife, uh, Leana Hanatha Fressa, also known as Leana Flamehair, etc., etc., who are our old friends Bazel and Layana from uh, Warmaid's Choice. Um, and uh, the real reason that they have the tavern, oh, Bazel these days is the uh, swordmaster of the Belhaden chapter of the Order of Tominate. Um So he's kind of got, uh, uh, I think of it as, as having a teaching position when he's not, not out doing research and experiments in the field. <laughs> Especially with the canal that we were building in uh, in Warmaid's Choice, um, you know, he he really doesn't have to quote work for a living, close quotes. But that's not how his head works. And uh, he and Leanna have a daughter, uh, Gwenna, uh, who is about uh, ten or eleven when when we meet her, and she is half human and half Radani. And this means that she is going to probably be facing some prejudice from bigots of both races. Uh, plus, being a hybrid of those two species, she's likely to live as long or longer than a half-elf. Uh, but she's infertile. Uh, the, the cross between uh, human and Radani is, is sterile. Uh, which, as Winsett points out at one point in one of the earlier books, is probably just as well uh, for uh, the rest of the races of men, because if they could reproduce as a sixth race of men, the human Hridani cross would be really, really dangerous. They get uh, long life, they get the Hridani link to the magic field, and because they're human, they're potentially wizards. <laughs> so it's kind of mm -hmm. like, okay, just as well we don't have them stacked 12 deep out there, you know, in the in the lobby. But one of the reasons that Bazel and Leanna own the Iron Axe is that Bazel deliberately set out to create an environment uh, in which Gwenna would be exposed to the world at large from a very early age. Uh, so that she could, she would, she could be, um, so that she could grow up in as close to a normal lifestyle as anybody whose father is a uh, champion of Tominake and whose mother is a war maid commander of a thousand uh, and daughter of one of the four greatest nobles in the Sothoe kingdom. 
uh, as close to normal a childhood as someone like that could possibly have. Um, and his whole object in doing this is to to uh, while he and Liana are still alive, uh, to to build for Gwenna that sense of security and self knowledge of who she is that will allow her to continue when you know 150 years from now, even people who are members of her family and who you know the children and the grandchildren, people who knew and loved her, will still see her as this this sort of figure out of legend and maybe resent the fact that she's was here before they were born and will still be here centuries after they're gone kind of thing. Uh, Liana is not as concerned about that as Bazel is, but that's because Bazel has had the experience of dealing with the the prejudice against Radani, which makes the entire race, that entire race of man, like outcast in the eyes of the rest of Norfressa. And Bazel, Bazel will do anything to protect the people he loves. He'll do anything to protect almost anybody, but especially the people that he loves. And um, he's committed himself to trying to protect Gwena as much as possible from the damage that that kind of hatred can do. There's also a secondary reason why they have, uh, why they want to be specifically in Belhaden while they're doing this that also relates to Gwena. But we're not going to talk about that right now. <laughs> All right. But it does, it does form a significant and really cool uh, uh, subplot in the book. So we do find out more about that. Yes, we do find we do find out in the course of the book why they're where they are, uh, and um, it's uh, it's a significant element in the plot of this book, and it is an element that will become even more significant as the series progresses. I'll just say that. All right. Well, if anybody's going to be intrigued by that and decide that on the basis of that they'll buy the book, good on them. Good on them. Well, I mean, it'll be fun to see what the kid of uh, Leanna and Basel is up to. Uh, oh, she's a handful. I'll tell you uh, that right now. You know, it's, uh, I, I I really enjoyed the scenes where she's interacting specifically with Basel when he goes off of the adventure, tells her tells her to to be good and mind her mother while he's gone, and she says, "Like always, Papa." And he says, "Don't you like always me?" I said, "Behave." <laughs> It's like Basel has the daughter he deserves in every sense of the word. <laughs> and Liana, too. I mean, um, Liana doesn't get to go adventuring very much in this book. Um, trust me, that will change in future books. But the reason that she can't ties in with the reason they're in Belhaden to begin with. Um, and. Eh, that's probably enough. All right. Well, let's let's talk about another important character in the book, who is Winsett of Room. Um, hmm? He wants Ken Hoden to accompany him, or to go on a quest. He really can't tell Ken Hoden what the quest is quite yet, without getting into a uh, into any any um, spoilers. This is the culmination of fifteen hundred years of planning by Winsett, right? Okay, part of the problem is, I think I can, okay, Uh, one of the big reasons that Ken Hoden isn't being told who he is by Winston is that it's really, really important that the bad guys not know who Ken Hoden is uh, at this point, Uh, um, because if they knew who he was, and what was going on, uh, what, what Winston has in mind in this book. Um, if they knew, then the wizard lords down in Kantavar, despite the fact that they're afraid that, to backtrack slightly here for those who have not read the books or haven't read them in a while, the earlier books, um, when the wizard war in Kantavar, when Torin Sordak, the last of the Ottavaran emperors and his army, 
were destroyed after a 40-year rearguard action to allow as many people as possible to refugee out to North Russia. Winsett and the, uh, the Council of Adivar, uh basically carried out a strategic nuclear strike on the continent of, uh, of Kantavar, uh, from which they had, they had, um, they'd refugeed out. And they couldn't kill all of the wizard lords because, to put it in 21st century terms, their fallout shelters were too deep. They were all up down under Cheyenne Mountain. Okay. But they pretty much killed everybody in New York and Los Angeles and, you know, the, 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 the infrastructure that would have supported a follow-up attack on Kantavar, including a, the vast majority of the weaker wizards. And once those spells are activated, they can be reactivated by somebody with sufficient power. Winsett, oh, who was part of the original working. Well, Winsett was part of the original working, and he's a wild wizard. And therefore, Kantavar has been unable to do anything that might provoke him into doing this all over again. They know that the, the Council of Carnadosa, uh, who run Kantavar and who have been rebuilding for, uh, it took them like a thousand years to recover from what Winston and the White Council did to them, really. But they, um, know that Winston is still haunted by all the millions upon millions of people who got killed, most of whom were slaves, not evil inherently, not by choice. Many of them were, uh, had chosen to give themselves to, to the dark, but others simply had been taken. They had no choice, and he, he and his companions killed them anyway. So they know that he really, really, really doesn't want to do this again, but if they push his back to the wall and he sees it as the only way to protect Norfressa, they know that he's done it once and he'll do it again. Um, the question that is exercising the mind of the head of the Council of Carnadosa at this moment, though, is whether or not Winston still has the power to do it. He has the capability and that he has access to the spells, to the working that made it possible in the first place. But it took 300 members of the, of the White Council, most of whom died in the process, to make it work the first time around. And so they don't know for sure whether or not Winsett can do it. So basically, it's been a Cold War situation with the Kantavarans, the Carnadosans, not daring to push too openly against Winsett because they don't know if he still has the capacity to strike their continent again. And part of what's going on in this book is that the... Uh, the, the council has set this up to test Winsett's power, to try and set up a situation in which he'll have to give them an indication of whether or not he still has the capacity to, to, to use the spells against them. So Winsett knows that this is part of what's going on in their minds down there. Um, and he also knows that if they knew who Kid Hoden is, and if they knew what Winsett is planning to accomplish in the course of this book, this quest, that they might very well take the chance on forcing him one way or the other without the test in order to kill Kid Hoden before Winsett can pull it off. And so that's one reason why he literally cannot tell Winsett, I mean, he literally cannot tell Ken Houghton, because for various reasons that become clear in the book as we go along, he can't block the, the scrying spells from, from, uh, from Kantavar that would be able to pick up on that information if he gave it to, if he gave it to Ken Houghton. Um, and in that case, all hell would be out for noon, and Winsett's not ready for that yet either. Winsett is maneuvering very carefully here, more carefully than a lot of people realize, and he's been doing it for a very, very long time. 
Well, you you called him a wild wizard. Can you tell us what that means? Well, okay, there are three varieties of people who can use magic in Orfresa. Uh There's witches and warlocks. Witches and warlocks are think of them as uh, as hedge wizards. Uh, you know, they can give you a healing charm. They can do you know that kind of stuff, but they can't really do the heavy lifting of magic. That they have a natural affinity for the art, sort of like the ancestors of the elves did, but nowhere near as powerful. And because it's a natural gift for the art, they don't study the art the way that other wizards do. Um, and as a result, since they don't study it that way, since they use it so naturally, they never really become as powerful as they might be because they don't learn the technique to make the best advantage of this natural feel that they have. Okay, well, next you have wand wizards, who are also known as sorcerers or sorceresses. And they are people who have a substantially lower natural feel for the art than the witches and warlocks do. And they can't do it sort of instinctively the way that the, that the, the warlocks do. They have to learn how to do it, and they learn certain uh, limited, specific applications of the art, uh, as it were. They learn combinations that they can put together to to create more complex spells. Uh, they can do things that uh, a warlock would only dream of, but they, it requires very careful preparation on their part. It's very... They're manipulating forces which can destroy them in a heartbeat if their control wavers, and they have to learn the, the, the processes, the procedures, the mnemonics that are involved in making all of this work. But they can be very, very powerful, but they spend a long time studying and are... Most of the dark wizards that you're going to run into are wand wizards who took shortcuts to limit the danger to themselves at the expense of others. Um, and they can be very, very powerful, but they also uh, almost, well, automatically, if they pursue those shortcuts, wind up uh, on the dark side of the, of the equation. And then the final bunch of wizards are wizards like Winsett, who are wild wizards. And wild wizards, unlike, wild wizards are kind of like uh, warlocks and witches on steroids. Um, they can literally see and manipulate the energy of the, 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 the magic field, which is the energy that binds the entire universe together. They operate, if you will, uh, on the molecular, the atomic level. Um, they can, uh, a wild wizard who, who really wants to, uh, could pick up a piece of rock and and dissolve it into its constituent atoms by manipulating it on that level. Uh, part of what happened in the strafing of Kantavar was, in effect, uh, Winsett using his wild wizardry as part of the, the working to accomplish what for all intents and purposes was, was uh, atomic fission or even nuclear fusion. Um, backed up by the, the life force of his fellow white wizards. So the thing about wild wizards, though, is that when they're born, they have like zero affinity for the art. I mean, they can't, you know, they're like, you know. Um, and wild wizardry is inherent in them, but what awakens it is an internal process, um, and usually it is desperation. Um, when when someone who has the potential for wild wizardry is up against something that that you know he just he just can't accept that you know that that this is something that he cannot allow to happen or or whatever. Um, his back is against the wall for himself or somebody he cares about, something like that. 
like a, uh, an interior barrier goes down and the power of wild wizardry kind of floods into him. And the problem is that unless he can, unless he knows what it is and can figure it out, uh, real, real quick, it basically consumes him in that moment. Now, probably consume everything else in the vicinity, you understand, it's mm-hmm. messy, uh, but it's, uh, and, and, it seems to be a rule of wild wizardry that anyone who who thinks he has the potential automatically doesn't or else blocks that potential in himself. Um, nobody knows for sure if it's that the way it works, not even wince it knows, but that's the way it seems to be. So in a duel with another wizard, for example, uh, going back to the fact that wild wizards are very elemental personalities. In a duel with another wizard, the wand wizard would be using combat magic that's been worked out ahead of time, spells that he or she has learned, uh, possibly prepared ahead of time or whatever. And a wild wizard basically just reaches out, grabs the magic field, and just throws raw energy at his opponent until he pretty much turns the opponent into a greasy spot on the pavement. Um, and this means that wild wizards are the wizards who are most feared by other wizards. Um, and there have been very few of them. Uh, Ottavar the Great was a wild wizard. Winston is a wild wizard. There have only been a handful of others. Um, and one of the points that, uh, that Winston's I don't think he addresses in this book, but it's one that will be addressed eventually, is it's hard for Winston to know how many wild wizards there might have been if the wizards in question had, if the individuals in question had realized what was happening and been able to grapple with it when it suddenly burst in on them. There are some similarities there between um, the... uh, the, the mage crisis that the magi uh, undergo when they when they grow into their psionic powers they have a they experience a crisis in which they have to their 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 brain in effect has to open new channels for them to be able to deal with what's suddenly rushing in on them from the rest of the universe around them as their perceptions shift and change um, and it, there's a little similarity between that and what a wild wizard goes through. Mm-hmm. And wild wizards also have very freaky eyes. Well, yeah, that's how you can tell they're wild wizards. Uh, their their eyes. Nobody has actually seen Winston of Room's eyes in like the last yeah you know, millennia and a half or so. Um, millennium and a half. Sorry, singular. Um, because they 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 reflect the magic field that is now part of the wizard. He's always attached to it, like uh, Fradani is, only more so. Um, and it manifests in his eyes becoming these um, uh, flickering, glowing, uh, uh, shifting colors uh, sort of thing. I, uh, upon occasion, you'll actually, if you're looking at Winston in profile, you see like little specks of 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 this the same wildfire from his eyes actually breaking free and and drifting upward uh kind of thing yeah it, it's kind of kind of cool if you're if you if you're into that kind of thing that was part 1 of our interview with David Weber discussing the sword of the south part 2 and the conclusion to the interview will be available as part of next week's podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster. 
and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 6 I didn't create the virus, Tim said. The room was windowless, and since he'd been transported with a bag over his head, he wasn't even sure where he was. And good luck with getting a lawyer. The ride had also made him puke all over his lap and shoes, which wasn't adding to his day. All I did was prove it was possible to express two different... All we want is the vaccine, kid, the FBI agent said calmly. I didn't make the virus, Tim screamed. If I had the vaccine, I'd have vaccinated myself and my mom. You've got all the materials in your basement, son, the agent said, still calmly. It wasn't like the geek could get violent chained to a chair. So just explain how to make the vaccine. Ah! There is no RNA or DNA related to the pathogen in this material, Dr. Carza said, shrugging. His team had run every stored microorganism in the suspect's lab in world record time. There was lots of other stuff, but exactly zero was pathogenic. Fascinating breakthrough. Brilliant. Really brilliant. But it has nothing except background science to do with the actual pathogen. You didn't get it right the last time, Agent Schornauer said. Why do we trust you this time? You want to figure it out, tough guy? Bottom line, except for pure scientific aspects, this is a dead end. We'll determine that. The FBI director looked at the report and grimaced. According to not only the CDC point people, but FBI labs, there was zero evidence that this shawl kid had any background, contact, or access to the Pacific flu. There was lots on his computers, not to mention his blog, the YouTube videos, which he'd actually found really useful explaining how this bug worked, about dual expressionism. What there wasn't was a scrap of the actual bug or any references to it. All the kid had worked with was non-human pathogenic materials, mostly something called colophage lambda, whatever the hell that was. There was less evidence of H7D3 in the Shoal home than in, say, the front lobby of the J. Edgar Hoover building, which another report had just noted was lousy with the stuff. He decided to let the attorney general and the bureau's lawyers worry about it. There are still conditions under which he could be a questionable actor, he typed into the memo. Change his status to material witness and give him to the CDC. Keep somebody on him and don't let him slip away. My client is only guilty of an extremely important scientific breakthrough. Dr. Curry thought you really had to love the caption. Pacific Flu Killer's Attorney. They didn't even have the poor attorney's name displayed. The FBI has shown no proof that my client had any part in creating the flu. Which, from everything Curry was scanning, which was probably more than the attorney was being given access to, was true. Or at least, the only part the kid had played was breakthrough synbio, which meant he was going to have a fun time convincing the DOJ he wasn't guilty. Assuming the world didn't come apart entirely, the upside was that he'd be able to sue the crap out of the federal government and get more scholarships than you could shake a stick at. Right now, that didn't look likely. And I'll remind the media of the FBI's record in high-profile cases. Richard Jewell, a hero who was arrested and immediately publicly condemned. Dr. Stephen Hatfill, a researcher assisting the FBI who was publicly charged in the anthrax case. Great way to make friends there. Shull isn't your culprit, Dr. Dobson said wearily. We're still trying to determine his part in this, the FBI deputy director for terrorism replied. His part was to create one of the necessary technological conditions, Dobson said, as patiently as he could. That's it. He made a breakthrough. The same thing could be said for dozens of professional researchers, you might as well indict Alfred Nobel for every IED in Iraq. And I'd really prefer you didn't lock them all up. We need them, as we need Shull. He's an expert on dual expression, 
Nobody had even looked at it before he did. So sure, keep him in custody, but if you don't put him on a plane to Atlanta by the end of the day, I'll let you explain it to the news media and the president, and I want my people talking to him within the hour. He didn't make the virus, but he understands it in a way we don't. The Department of Education has mandated a total shutdown of all public and private schools starting Monday. School's out for summer, Dr. Curry crooned, looking at the latest spread graphs. Only Sunday, and they'd gone from dots on the West Coast to spreading red in every reporting zone across the globe. And the Save the Planet deodorizers had been found in dozens of public locations stretching up and down the eastern and western seaboards. Somebody had been a busy little beaver. School's out forever. Okay, first of all, Dr. Carza said, shaking his head at the scene in the interrogation room. Get him out of the cuffs. Doctor, just get him out of the cuffs, you dick-brained myrmidon, Carza snarled. He's not going to be able to think if he thinks he's on the way to Gitmo, and we need his brain. He waited until the agent had released Shoal and left. Idiots, Carza said, shaking his head again. I mean, not actual idiots. They're smart, they just aren't biosmart. And that scares them. And I didn't literally mean we need your brain, just in case you were wondering. I didn't make the virus, Tim said, rubbing his wrists. Please, I really didn't. I'm worried about catching it. I know, Carza said, nodding. My lab processed the hell out of yours. There were zero pathogens in your lab, and I'm pretty sure from the looks you hardly ever went out. And eventually, they'll figure the same thing out. I really don't, Tim said, hunching up. Not since I left school. Sorry about the master's thing, Carza said, shrugging. I know Dr. Werda. He's a dick, and not nearly as important as he thinks he is in the field. I'm Dr. Azim Karza, from the CDC, by the way. And while I'll admit you have more problems than I do, try being the lead investigator on a bioterror attack while being Islamic, born in Iran and with a name like Azim Karza. I can imagine, Tim said, chuckling and sniffing at the same time. Your mom is fine, sort of, Karza said. She's been released and she's gotten you a lawyer who, for all sorts of Patriot Act reasons, isn't going to be able to help you anytime soon. On the other hand, CDC is on your side. We get how the DOJ reacts in these sort of things. They think about the perp walk and calming the public because, just because you have the culprit, the plague is going to stop all by itself. We react differently. Which is why I'm here. We're going to be moving you to Atlanta pretty soon. Not the pen, to CDC. FBI and DOJ are still going to be going apeshit and asking all sorts of questions you can't answer. That's because they don't know which questions to ask. We know you don't know how to make a vaccine, or a cure, as the FBI keeps insisting. They've been watching too many movies. What's the cure? They don't like, there isn't one, even theoretically. But what we need is your knowledge of dual expression. So what we'd like you to do is go with the flow for the time being. You're under arrest, but as of this point, you're also one of our research associates. Until DOJ can get over the he-had-to-have-made-the-virus, they'll probably insist on treating you like a criminal. Let them. Cooperate with them. Be polite. Keep your head down. If we, that meaning the CDC, can possibly get one of our people along the whole time, we will and he or she will be there to both pick your brain and keep the fibbies from getting berserk. Let your lawyer work on getting you out, and work with us on finding a vaccine. Deal? At the very least, it's going to make their argument that you must have done it, because you can, a little weaker. The term is cooperation. Goes loads with judges. Absolutely, Tim said, nodding vigorously. I mean... A chance to work with the CDC on this is like a dream come true. I really, really want to help. Good, Karza said. Good. Now, how in the hell did you get a DNA virus to express an RNA virus? 
That right there was effing brilliant. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a gratitudinous sword arch formed by 1,000 wind riders and their coarser steeds so massive that the city of Belhaden charges for tourists to go up in it and see the fleet of ships lying offshore in the Belhaden Roads. For David Weber, author of New Norfressa fantasy novel, The Sword of the South. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>